You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19. We're delighted today to be joined again by a good friend, Susan Glasser, staff writer at The New Yorker. Welcome, Susan. Thanks for making time to be with Andrew and me today. Oh, it's great to talk with you. So we're going to jump right in. In one of your recent letters, your weekly letters from Biden's Washington, one of your recent letters on September 16th, uh, you argue that it's a calculated political choice by Trumpists and Republican leadership. You coin it a tragic mistake, a tragic triumph of Trumpism to keep just enough people resisting the Biden administration efforts to control the virus. In other words, to keep the disease wreaking havoc, and the results have been pretty devastating. You conclude we cannot beat the virus in such a worsening and cynical political environment, and that this reality is killing Americans on an industrial scale. That's a very powerful and stark indictment. How did you arrive at that? What triggered that conclusion. It's very dramatic. It's very striking. Well, you know, I that was the week that there was, you know, obviously we've been living for a year and a half in a, a steady parade of horrific metrics. But, you know, that was also the week that, that one of those metrics just sort of happened to really jump out at me. The number one in 500 Americans dead since the advent of the pandemic. It was just a few days after that, the following week, that the U.S. surpassed in total numbers uh, obviously not in, you know, per capita numbers, the, the number of Americans who died in the great influence of 1918. So 675,000 Americans dead. We're headed towards 700,000. You know, go back. It's very hard to do that, but go back in time to your February 2020 self and imagine what it would have been like. And I actually went back and read while writing that column, some of the coverage in the early days of the pandemic, the notion of 700,000 dead would have been seen as such a colossal American failure. And the fact that we have bit by bit accommodated ourselves to this reality doesn't make it any the less horrific. And, And it seems to me that, you know, a lot of the job of a columnist or an analyst, right, is to be able to, to certainly live within the daily noise of our politics, but also to be able to step outside of it. And it seems to me, right, you know, that any presidency and any era in American history is going to be judged by not the millions of small things that barrage us every day, but, you know, a few big things. And this, like it or not, is the big thing for the Biden presidency in the same way that it was the big thing for the Trump presidency. Do you think that there's no accountability in our system that there's no prospect that that this cynicism may go away or that it may be challenged. I mean, what you're saying is that Trumpism and the Republican leadership don't want us to be successful, and that's continuing to drive these numbers up. I was on the mall this morning. I went past Suzanne Furstensburg's dramatic installations, 687,000 this morning. Every morning it's updated and you have this profound, you know, that number of flags on the mall. Is there no accountability in your view? You know, I think, Steve, that not just for the course of the pandemic, but even before that, a lot of people who 
were critical of where the country's politics was going, who were critical of Donald Trump, you know, there was this almost persistent fantasy of a sort of get well moment, an idea that this was, you know, some sort of like a violent, you know, virus that would course through our system and then be gone. But just like the pandemic, it's not. And it seems to me that it's become a chronic, you know, illness of our system rather than to extend the metaphor, some sort of very telling and awful episode that we then recover from in some, you know, relatively rapid way. That's not going to happen. And I think that we have to come to terms with that. We haven't come to terms with that in part because human nature is optimistic (laughs) and there's always the chance that it will get better. But, you know, there was that chance. It hasn't happened. And we have to look that reality squarely in the eye. And I think where, where politicians and individuals get in trouble is when they are unable to face unpleasant realities and to make decisions accordingly. And You know, whereas it was possible that things could have gone differently, the vaccine offered us this incredible opportunity to close the door on the virus, and yet it didn't happen. That is not an accident, and that's what I wrote about. It's not an accident. Joe Biden couldn't inoculate the country against Fox News. Couldn't inoculate it against the resistance and the hesitancy in the population. Andrew. Susan, you wrote something in your latest piece for The New Yorker, It's Too Early to Consign Joe Biden to the Ash Heap of History, that really stood out to me. You said, and I quote, that the Biden presidency on both foreign and domestic fronts remains a jumble of aspirations and retains a haze of uncertainty about how to achieve them. Now, President Biden campaigned on, you know, the adults are coming back. What's happened? Well, look, I mean, the political polarization of the country has happened. A 50-50 Senate has happened. There was always a mismatch. And a lot of this is, by the way, it's not Joe Biden's, you know, fault per se. I mean, it's interesting that people have taken this, you know, there was a whole wave of coverage of this column of mine, interestingly, in Breitbart News and uh, the New York Post. <laughs> I mean, to me, what you're, that quote you're reading is a statement of the obvious. It's a statement of the political reality. It's not like... Joe Biden didn't invent the 50-50 Senate. That was the reality he was given. And by the way, I should say most presidencies at this point are a jumble of aspirations and a haze of uncertainty about how it's going to turn out. You know, we could have had this conversation, although I would have been very young and it wouldn't have been very interesting (laughs) in the, you know, September of Ronald Reagan's first years in office or Bill Clinton's first years in office. And guess what? It was a jumble of aspiration and a haze of uncertainty. So in part, it's a statement of the obvious, but in part, it's also a recognition that our politics have become so sclerotic and uncertain that it's not clear what any president can accomplish when almost half of the country is dedicated to their failure. You know, Biden's been somebody who's worked across the aisle before. He famously, you know, made deals with Mitch McConnell. Is it impossible for him to bridge the gap, even though we're so polarized and, you know, we have all these things stacked against us? Well, again, this was the proposition that Biden came into office essentially testing, right? He he spoke in his inaugural address, as he did throughout his campaign, of being a uniter and not a divider. That is traditional, by the way, language for an American politician. What was so exceptional about Donald Trump was the embrace of division as a governing mantra for his presidency. That's just just not how American presidents, certainly of the post-war era, have chosen to govern. 
And so Biden, in that sense, represented an, an aspiration to a return to a politics of the status quo ante. But again, we do have now eight months worth of evidence, and it suggests a couple of very disturbing things. Number one, certainly it's great to turn down the rhetoric to dial down the tone. He has done so, so that day in and day out, many people are not living with the reality of constant chaos and crisis and, you know, fighting that, that Trump projected. However, you see when you screen out that rhetoric that the, the structural challenge of a democracy where half of the country and more than half, arguably, of the politicians are determined to see the president fail, not just, you know, to, have policy fights with the president or to, but more or less to see the president fail. That dynamic not only has not disappeared, but in some ways has been exacerbated because it's actually the strategy of Trump and his party. Susan, let's talk a bit about the most recent COVID-19 summit, the global COVID-19 summit that President Biden called last week, last Wednesday, 22nd. That was a major step in terms of trying to reignite High-level diplomacy, it's been missing. High-level statesmanship summitry has been missing in the 19 months of this pandemic. It's kind of a startling reality. And so the president jumped forward, aiming for a big tent, big commitments, trying to close the gap on vaccines, trying to save lives with more more inputs required, trying to think long-term in ter- terms of financing in a, some, some sort of governing global health security threats council what do you make of this of that summit given what you what you had written earlier about the biden presidency remains a jumble of aspirations and retains a haze of uncertainty how are you looking at that moment yeah i think that's a great example of one of the big and important and necessary aspirations of the biden presidency which is to reignite america's leadership role in the world in exactly this kind of multilateral kind of getting commitments not just from the united states but other uh nations finding institutions and ways to work collectively on transnational problems that's a key element of biden's diplomacy as it was of Barack Obama's in the eight years he was Obama's vice president. Obviously, Trump, that's another area in which he was a, a stark departure from American leadership. So I think it's it's an example of one of those aspirations finally sort of kicking into gear. A couple observations, though. Number one, when you have this kind of flaming dumpster fire of a problem inside the United States in terms of its politics and also in terms of its vaccine hesitancy having spurred this very deadly fourth wave of the disease here in the inside the country. When you have this domestic crisis, it does inevitably impact your ability to be a world leader. And so that is a fact, not a speculation, but a fact that the Biden administration is dealing with in terms of its foreign policy, number one. Number two, it has been really striking to me that because perhaps it's because of the nature of the overwhelming number of crises that they're facing here at home. You see both on COVID, on the Afghanistan withdrawal, uh, the Biden team in reality has been somewhat less multilateral and consultative and alliance focused than they said they were going to be. I can't quite tell yet because we don't have the visibility in terms of the reporting, I think, yet to understand is that simply a function of being overwhelmed, of the lack of diplomats that are confirmed yet? Is it their instincts? I mean, you know, why didn't Biden ever call the French president in the middle of this kerfuffle over the creation of the new Australia 
uh, UK alliance and the uh, canceling of the French submarine deal. You know, it was weird, right? I mean, you know, that's not the action of yeah. somebody who's so multilateral. The European allies were extremely distressed, despite what the president directly said to the public. It wasn't true when Biden said, oh, no, everything's fine. We consulted the allies. No, that wasn't the case. They were very upset about the Afghanistan withdrawal, both the policy decision, by the way, back in April and the execution in August. And then on COVID, I've just been really surprised, like, you know, Donald Trump, you know, canceled the G7 summit because he was in such a snit essentially, that uh, Merkel wouldn't come and it couldn't be in person to showcase his reopening of the country, but then essentially abandoned all pretense of international leadership, withdrew the United States from the WHO. There was no coordinating group of world leaders talking about the international response to COVID. And this became especially urgent, it seemed to me, once the vaccines were created and and how to distribute them. But Biden could have on January 21st, said, okay, you know, I'm now going to have a weekly phone call, you know, with other leaders to figure out how to get our act together. He didn't do that. I don't know why. Uh, Interestingly, I think when you look at this COVID-19 summit, a connection between that and Afghanistan, and what I mean by that is there was very, very little preparation time and very little outreach. And when you listen to the statements coming from the Indonesians, from the Indians, from the South Africans, from the Vietnamese, there was a slow boil of anger and frustration in those polite statements in terms of, we're tired of charity, we're tired of hypocrisy, we're sitting here, the vaccine gap is worsening, not improving, and we don't have the capacity we need, and we need manufacturing capacity, we need tech transfer. There was a like, we're tired of being of this happy talk and we want to move on. And can't you make an argument really that Afghanistan, the lack of preparations for the aftermath of the withdrawal from Afghanistan threw a wrench into everything and absorbed for six, eight weeks, absorbed critical time and energy. They almost didn't have the summit. And when they did, they had to pull it together in record short time. Yeah, I think that's a very interesting observation. And, you know, again, what percentage of what we're seeing is an example of uh, an administration and a White House that's in complete firefighting mode and just is overwhelmed by the multiple number of crises? And what percent is genuine kind of evidence of a, a predilection on the part of this administration not to consult? Again, I suspect a lot of it is in the execution and in the overwhelmingness, but it, either way, it, it has to underscore the conclusion for people right now that American international leadership is completely and very much intertwined with its ability to get its act together domestically. And for a long time, I have considered, you know, essentially this political crisis in the U.S. to be the number one geopolitical crisis and geopolitical source of instability. Susan, I want to come back to polarization for a second. If we're so polarized that we can't even deal with, you know, as you say, the big crisis at hand, COVID, and we can't, Biden can't get his colleagues across the aisle to do anything about it. How are we ever going to show leadership globally? Yeah. I mean, I think these are, these are big interlocking questions. You can't answer the one without answering the other. Now, I don't want to be, and, and you guys are that experts on on COVID and the pandemic, but just 
from an observer's point of view, it's clear to me that we haven't failed across the board or even in a, you know, an equal way. Much has been made, in fact, of the, the inequality that the pandemic has underscored and revealed rather than the opposite. However, you know, there are many success stories within the response. That's part of the reason why we keep coming back to the fact that what's not a success story is the political division in the country. And, you know, I think that David Leonhardt in the Times this morning called it the, you know, the red pandemic, the red virus. I would even go further and say it's actually the red death in the U.S. right now. And that is a man-made phenomenon, a politically constructed man-made phenomenon. Again, it may tend to diminish the accomplishments that have been made in other aspects of the pandemic recovery. And so I don't, you know, underestimate that. And that that kind of leadership at home is the foundation for international leadership as well. And of course, the most important leadership is the scientific leadership that has been extraordinary. And I, you know, and you, everyone in this conversation has benefited enormously. And our lives, you know, certainly are constrained in certain ways because of the pandemic and where we're at right now. But largely, we are able to work and to live uh, in a much freer and safer way as a result of it. And we don't live in Mississippi or Alabama where this kind of crisis is is really impacting right now. We haven't so, talked at all about China here. And it also seems to me that the world itself is very fragmented. Multilateral institutions are frayed. Alliances are frayed. But at the center of all of this is this sort of really toxic escalation of confrontation between the United States and China. That, Of course, the COVID origins debate is at the center of that, but it's much bigger than that. And it seems to me that that just impairs U.S. leadership in this period. I mean, this COVID summit, there was no Chinese representation. Russia wasn't there. UK, Boris Johnson didn't show up either. Uh, but it does bring home like we really have to come to terms with that reality somehow. And we also yeah. have to come to terms with the power of the private sector and the lack of accountability in terms of and transparency. Those two big, big challenges are out there, neither of which there was no serious private sector engagement at the COVID-19 summit either. No, that's right. They they want transparency as long as it doesn't affect them. And I think your point about China is really well taken because one other, I think, very powerful conclusion from the last year and a half is that international institutions were built without view toward and not anticipating the level of great power division and rancor that currently exists within the system. And I think the story about the WHO is a clear example of that. And these institutions, which already were arguably not super functional, <laughs> you know, have become almost non-functional as a result of that. You know, I think that Biden's address to the UN General Assembly was very interesting on this. He came into office and his Secretary of State came in saying the U.S.-China rivalry is the defining rivalry and challenge of the 21st century. And yet Biden never used China's name when it came to his U.N. General Assembly speech, although he clearly referenced it. And he uses this big picture gloss around his foreign policy of saying, you know, essentially we are moving into an era of confrontation between democracies and authoritarian 
countries. Yeah, and he said he's not trying to start another Cold War. Yeah, exactly. It's again, you want to talk about, you know, a jumble and a, a contradictory jumble that I think you could write a whole other column just on the, the confusing messaging of that UN General Assembly speech. But I think what it reflects, by the way, is the reality that actually the Chinese have continued to escalate and, and take a tougher line than the Biden team expected. And in fact, you know, right. Xi Jinping finally had a phone call with Biden before the UN General Assembly, and essentially they agreed upon nothing. I mean, the Chinese humiliated John Kerry, the former Secretary of State, when he flew recently to China to talk about climate, which is his current brief. They refused to send anyone of any stature to meet with him uh, after pointedly receiving the Taliban <laughs> at a much higher level just a, a couple weeks before that. And I think that there's a fear that the escalation has become so sharp so fast that even on the things where the world has to get along, which would include the pandemic, which would include climate change, the Chinese are continuing essentially to say, no way, we're not even going to engage with the Americans. Do you think we're drifting inexorably into a Cold War division? I fear that there is a self-fulfilling nature of some of these prophecies and that, yes, I do. Well, Xi Jinping has shown for quite some time that he's not Hu Jintao. And clearly, the Chinese are furious now about the deal, about the AUKUS deal, that we just did this submarine deal with Australia and the UK. So, you know, stay tuned. Look, I think that when you look at the course of the Xi Jinping tenure uh, at the top of China, you know, again, you have to get rid of emotionalism and, and look at it in a very clear-eyed way. He's essentially become a leader for life. He has abandoned the consensus uh, leadership system of the Chinese that powered their extraordinary economic rise and globalization. He has put billions and billions into the military. He has militarized parts of the region that had not been. He has engaged in extraordinary levels of repression inside China that have not been seen since the Cultural Revolution, including the, you know, essentially imprisonment of a million Uyghurs, including using the cover of the pandemic to take over and eliminate Hong Kong's remaining democratic freedoms. And where was the West with that? Where was the United States? Where was Britain? The answer is they were nowhere. They let it happen because they didn't have the tools, the focus, the attention, the leadership in the world to do anything about it. Where are we headed? You don't have to be a genius or to have some sort of super sophisticated international relations theory of the case to understand that this kind of division in the world is happening, period. China's message has been pretty clear on COVID, but President Biden's might hasn't been. And he recently has shifted to a more coercive and aggressive approach to vaccines and other measures. And in his six-point plan, he's heavily reliant on mandates. But patience is running really thin, and political pressures to shift course have been significant. So part of this for him has also been this confusing push about boosters, right? What, what in your view, is driving this reset, and what do you make of it? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Biden is going to be getting, you know, his booster uh, and consistent with the new policy they finally announced after a lot of confusing back and forth. But they've now announced a policy where 65 years and older, you know, are eligible for the boosters. And obviously that includes President Biden. The mandates thing is very interesting because 
in the end, you can certainly make the case that what we've been talking about up until now was outside of Biden's control, right? In the end, he could try, his administration could try, but it was very hard for them to persuade Republicans to get vaccinated if Republicans saw refusing to get vaccinated as a way of proving their membership in a trot. And so, you know, you could say that part is on Biden. However, his response to that fact, his acknowledgement of that fact, I think, is on Biden. And, you know, there were for months uh, people who demanded with escalating levels, <laughs> decibel levels, that uh, we should follow a much more uh, aggressive course of mandates and that that's what actually governments do in a situation like this. And I do think that that it, Biden will be seen to have used that tool very reluctantly and therefore very belatedly. Uh, the one international trip I've been able to do since this whole pandemic began was a short trip this summer to Germany for a wedding that had already been delayed for a year. And, you know, look, vaccines are required to do basic things there. And they're not politicized and they're not controversial. Same thing with masking, of course. But masking is the public health equivalent of what you're doing while you're waiting for the vaccine. <laughs> and, you know, just like you now go into a restaurant in New York City, you have to have your vaccine card. Like that was already the case in Germany this summer. Nobody at punches the hostess at the restaurant when, you know, they ask you for your vaccine card, you just do it. And so why did the Biden administration hesitate? Uh, they understood it was a divisive measure that would cause further uh, hysteria on the part of anti-vaccine hysterics. But it was also, I think they didn't take into account the needs of the majority of the country in doing so. And I think that that's a legitimate critique. And again, throughout the Trump years, what we've seen is that a very, very vocal minority of Americans have had an outsized control over what the majority of Americans. And by the way, Biden still has not done the vaccine mandate that would really do something to return our country to normalcy, which is a vaccine mandate for airplanes. How can that right. be? It's crazy. You know, it's amazing. Republicans and Democrats can both agree on, you know, the antagonism towards China. China has be you know disliking China has become a bipartisan value but we can't agree on public health it's astonishing Susan before we run out of time I want to come back to this question we started with a discussion around the country and the divisions within our country and accountability and the you know this stark indictment of the republicans and trumpism in that context do you believe we should be pursuing a national commission of some kind. You know, Philip Zelico, director of the 9-11 Commission, has been at work on this for a year. We've been involved in supporting him. A number of other people have joined in. There's many members of Congress who are talking about this. It's a tricky thing because obviously you can't have something sanctioned by authorized by Congress. That's not going to work. The Biden administration is going to be very cautious in its cooperation. So it's got to be something that has a lot of integrity and gravitas and a lot of autonomy. What are your thoughts on the value of that? Is that something we should really be striving for, given the magnitude of everything that we've been talking about here today? Absolutely. I'm so glad you brought that up. I cannot think of, uh, you know, a, an example of an event of such historical importance that has occurred, you know, recently in our lifetime that wouldn't have uh, that kind of, you know, authoritative, independent investigation, all the more important because of all the political factors we've been talking about. You know, a hundred years from now, 
the work of that commission, which I do hope will happen, uh, is something that people are going to need to look at and to understand. And, you know, potentially much sooner than that, given the, the very real likelihood of uh, a future serious global health events. And so, you know, I think we have to examine every aspect of the American response and experience of the last year and a half. And uh, the more authoritative, the more independent, the more comprehensive, the better. I recently had a conversation about this with John Barry, who was the author of the definitive book on the great influenza and has been involved, as I understand it, with this effort. And, you know, again, I just, the last few years have been, for me, a real reminder of, uh, you know, you can't escape history. And uh, I do think the historians have played an increasing role in our public discourse for that reason. History, in some ways, I'm a product of, you know, the late Cold War. That was sort of this weird moment when Americans could, you know, delude themselves into thinking we lived outside of history or in the end of history. But of course, it was a brief moment uh, and an exception, not the rule. And, you know, history has sort of kicked us in the face in the last few years. And this pandemic is a prime example of that. We want to end each of our conversations with our guests with a question around, a hopeful question. What gives you the greatest hope and optimism in this current situation? This this has been a tough conversation, right? And your writings of late have been very tough and very incisive and, and I think enormously important in trying to frame up where we are and where we're heading. So what continues to give you hope and optimism? I was just excited about the shout out for my fellow professor at Tulane, um, John Barry. <laughs> I'm a huge fan of uh, of John Barry's and, and all of his books, really. Look, here's the thing. Thank you so much to both of you for this great conversation and, and you know, your kind words about the column. I mean, the other thing, though, to take from history is that failure is is not not inevitable and that, you know, it's never too late to do the right thing. It's never too late to do the right thing. Did you ever think you would see uh, Liz Cheney on 60 Minutes, you know, apologizing to her sister and saying, yeah, essentially I was, you know, wrong and politically opportunistic in being against gay marriage when, of course, I actually was for it. And, you know, it's never too late to do the right thing. And there's always a factor you haven't considered. The, the, the miracle of science and the vaccines is something that I'm grateful for every day that I understand that wasn't an accident either, but it was the hard work over decades that produced it. And by the way, the failures, you know, that led to ultimately success in that field. My uncle had worked on this in an earlier iteration, these vaccines when they tried and did not succeed in getting the HIV vaccines. You know, for him, uh, late in his career to then be involved in, you know, this transformative event that could do so much good and save so many lives, you know, that's, that's optimistic. Thank you so much, Susan. It's really generous and very timely. This has been a great conversation. Thank you. Well, thank you guys for doing this. It's extraordinary. When you started this podcast, you probably didn't think you'd still be doing it all this time later, but uh, I'm grateful uh, for all of you and your thoughts and wisdom. Thank you. This is 103. Wow. <laughs> Unbelievable. Coronavirus Crisis Update is produced by Liz Bulver and Samantha Chivers. You can find our full catalog of podcasts, including Pandemic Planet and AIDS 2021, on our homepage at csis.org slash podcasts. Thank you.